morning. Today's reading is from John 11:47 through 12:10. Hear the word of the Lord. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, "What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this out of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money, He used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Thank you, Lisa. It's becoming more and more my experience as I uh, continue to kind of learn how to be with God's people and to teach his word and those kinds of things is that there are, although there are occasions where we run into somebody who truly sees themselves as um how would we say it God's gift to God I, I don't know how to get out of that sentence we always start that with saying God's gift to but it's like you know the person that thinks well God's lucky to have me I'm dialed in I'm skilled I'm talented that kind of thing we run into that occasionally but I think a greater thing is growing in the um, 
in the life of the church or in the constitution of God's people is that most people don't see themselves as qualified to even be before God or don't think that he would forgive them of their fill in the blank. And that while some people are wrestling with or, or should be wrestling with the fact that their own ego is keeping them from serving God purely, I think many of us feel like I can't be genuine before the Lord or I'm not really the same person that that uh, I want to be or that I want him to see me as because I come up short. I trip over myself or I mess things up. We desire a sincerity, not just from other people. That matters to us. We want our friends to be our friends. If they say they care about us, I think a certain thing about us. And we want to have some confidence of knowing that that's true. But we also desire some sincerity of ourselves. When we look in the mirror, am I really the person staring back at me? Do I, do I have a pureness of my heart that I, I have that character or that integrity? And, and we're not alone because God desires this from us as well. Paul was speaking to the Philippians, a church he adored and one that he was promoting and, and uh, thanking God for. And he writes very early in his letter to them in chapter one. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be, and we have the word pure here, but he also is using that word as sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. And if you've heard the lesson on Philippians before in this word sincere, you might recall that it has some imagery about it with sculpting. Because in the day that the sculptors would be out there practicing their craft, if there were blemishes or mistakes, they would use a wax to fill in those blemishes. The problem with the wax is if it was not in the right condition or the sun was beating down on it, it would melt the wax away and reveal the blemishes. In other words, it would be a knock on the artist. He wasn't as good as everyone thought he was. And Paul is praying for a sincerity amongst God's people so that when the heat comes and it melts away all of our uh, exteriors or our, 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 our um, uh, attempts to conceal who we really are, that there would be a purity or a sincerity in us that people would see the nature of who we are. But we often doubt the genuineness of our faith. We ask questions like, well, how am I supposed to worship God with a pure heart when I know who I am or I know what I've done? And sometimes we slip into a, a worship, I'll put that in quotes, a, a worship of convenience or of selfish need. You know, I get caught in that trap of, well, I need this from God. So if he needs me to speak his praises or sing his praises, then I'm game. But what we're going to see here in the midst of this drama that's unfolding with the raising of Lazarus is that devotion to God will become authentic when he is the giver of our life. Or we could see that sincerity is going to come much more naturally or much more as a reaction when we've had a life transforming event. Rather than something that we feel like we've got to muster up or, or muscle through, I just mean it this time, I'm serious for God. When we find real life in him, when we see what he's really up to and put all of our focus and attention in the life that he raises up, we start to see that our response in worship is much more genuine, much more pure. 
So let's set the stage from the reading that we just heard. We know that he's raised Lazarus and there's some contention about this, but there's also a lot of belief. A lot of people are responding saying, this dude raised the dead. I I was sort of like 75% of the way there. Now that I see Lazarus coming out and he's kind of mummified and they're trying to, you know, unwrap him and everything. Okay, I'm paying attention now. The scripture tells us that many believed in Jesus. I mean, how could you not? If anything, we should be a little bit questioning the use of the word many. How is it not all? Like, who are the people that are sitting there going, eh, still not good enough. I want to see more. Can he do cartwheels? I want to know if he can. Uh, What else are you waiting for? Shouldn't that clue us in to something about where disbelief or unbelief, I should say, comes from? This is how Homer Kent says this. He says, the response of unbelief in the face of the clearest proof is confirmation of what Jesus taught in Luke 16. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, Jesus said, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. The chief cause of unbelief is not inadequate information, which is what we often feel the pressure to supply more and more info but a heart in rebellion against the authority of God and his word. This should help us as we're striving and trying to reach our friends or our family. And we're saying, I think I'm doing everything right. I think I'm trying to live before the Lord. I think I'm being gentle, but persuasive with my gospel witness. I think I'm showing them compassion. I think I'm memorizing the right scriptures, all the things that we try to do to try to tell other people about the hope that we found. And yet there's no response. And we say, what, there's got to be some kind of code I can crack here. There's some bit of information that I don't have, but if they could watch Lazarus walk out of the grave and say, still not good enough, we have to understand that some people just are not ready to believe. So we go back into chapter 11. Let's pick up again in verse 47, because the chief priests and the Pharisees gather the council and they say to each other, so what are we supposed to do? For this man performs many signs. And now it gets awfully revealing. We've been hinting at this now all through John. I've been trying to explain what's really living below the surface of the deceit of the Pharisees. And now involving the Sadducees. And they say it for for all to be recorded. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And we'll lose out on our national status. We'll lose out on the goodwill that we've won over with the Romans. They're going to take those things away from us. So rather than recognizing we might have an answer to the thing that plagues all of us, which is death, still not good enough because the life that I can have now matters more to me than the one that's being promised to me down the road. You see the danger in this. And it's a strange mashup of people here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, even though they collectively are a part of the same council called the Sanhedrin, they don't really agree on a lot of things. The Pharisees are going to be more your religious side. They're going to focus on the traditions of the Old Testament, the, the spoken law that we've, ta- uh, that we've talked about before called the Mishnah. They're going to be more prone to believe that God can perform miracles, that he has angels at his beck and call, that there would be those that would be resurrected from the dead in the last day. This is where the Pharisees are tracking. The Sadducees, not so much. They're sort of like your nominal religious folks that are like, they're okay with some of that, but they don't recognize the same authority and the structures there from the Old Testament that they would, that the Pharisees would be calling to. 
And the Sadducees are much more politically involved. They're sort of friendly with the Romans. Why? Because they're the occupiers. Might as well make good with them. And the Pharisees are annoyed by the Romans. They're saying they don't follow our law. They don't care for our customs and all this sort of stuff. So they're just putting up with them. The Sadducees are trying to win them over because it gives them good standing. It gives them somebody to carry the water for so that they can be seen in the best light. But yet they come together in just a few short sentences in single mission. Why? Because this is what Jesus does. He unites and divides. He unites us sometimes because we're, we're brought together as brothers and sisters in fellowship and belief in him. But he also unites those kinds of armies and legions that seek to hate him and to punish him and to kill him. And they say, well, at least we have a common enemy. And this is what's happening here. All of this now being led by Caiaphas, who's the high priest. And he is the, the savvy political figure. He's been able to stay in his post longer than almost anybody else been there for, I think, like 18 years in this post. And, it, and the Romans are involved in kind of making sure that the high priest is someone they can work with and everything. So this gives you a bit of a picture of the kind of politician that Caiaphas is. But he's also, he's ruthless, he's shrewd, he's going to see what the political strategy needs to be. That's why he says, why would we sacrifice an entire nation for one guy? Let's get rid of the one guy so the whole nation can survive. And then John just filled in for us. He says he didn't even realize what he was prophesying, that Jesus would die for the nation, but not just for the nation, but for the sins of the whole world. So he was an unwilling prophet in that moment is what the scriptures are telling us. And Caiaphas being typical of that area with his authority, he's kind of snobby and rude. Looking down on them. He says, you guys don't know anything at all. You don't even know what you're talking about. Here's what we're going to do here. And he's taking charge. And he's pointing out to them, I think we have an opportunity here. And once he states that, what happens is this whole uh, uh, tone, this whole atmosphere, even though Jesus has been going to certain places under threat, even though he's been avoiding at certain times because of threat, now the whole thing is just coming to the light. And verse 53 said, so from that day on, They made plans to put him to death. They've just determined this is the point of no return. We can't let him go on like this. If he keeps doing this, I mean, what's he going to do better than he's already done with Lazarus? So, of course, they're going to start believing in him. It's only a matter of time. And so they plot to take him out. And now the stage is set for the work that Jesus really came to do. Let's be careful Let's be careful not to think of this in modern terms. In other words, we could say, man, Jesus had it going well for him. He was starting to get a following and then he just stepped in it because he went too far. The whole Lazarus thing was just too far. Or maybe he should have done it more privately so they wouldn't have. And we kind of strategize this thing like Jesus, his whole goal was longevity. Greater success on this earth and that sort of thing. No, Jesus had a mission from day one as we know. And now that mission is coming into the light and his followers and his friends are going to see just how much he intended for this to cost. But in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the pressure now building and from the re- for the rest of our study in John, it's all about marching towards the cross. But in the midst of that now is one of the most profound acts of worship in recorded history. And worship, if you're wondering where that word comes from, it's going to be pretty much spelled out for us anecdotally in this story. But, but worship, the word comes from just the blending of worth and ship. What is 
a thing or a person worth to you and how much will you lay down, sacrifice and invest in in order for you to show its worth. And so here is one of the greatest demonstrations of someone thinking he's worth everything I can give. And so we return to the family of Martha, Mary, and of Lazarus, and they're throwing what I think could also be a term for worship, which is a Jesus thank you party. You know, they're having a dinner and they're saying that he's our honored guest. He brought our brother back to life and the town's starting to hear about it. It's not that they had everybody in on the dinner. There's probably 20 or so people there. But they're having a worship celebration. What is What would that look like? Well, music and candle lighting? No, it was just... We just want to tell him how thankful we are that he gave us our brother back or in Lazarus case that he gave me air again. And we just want to dote on him. We just want to feed him. We just want to take care of him. You see, this is what worship really is made up of. And sometimes we complicate it or we oversimplify it. So it doesn't involve that kind of devotion or appreciation. And this family is going to show us that the straightest line to this authentic worship, this purity of our hearts that we wish we could confidently have is through the resurrection power of Jesus and, and, and encountering that directly as they did when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. So let's pick up again in chapter 12 in the first few verses where it sets the stage for us that this is six days before the Passover. Now, this is a time of purification. It's important for us to see the irony in this. They are getting ready to celebrate Passover, which is the great pointing back to Jesus. I mean, from God rescuing the children of Israel out of the hands of Egypt and leading them and providing for them. And and that final um, uh, straw that broke the camel's back of Pharaoh was when the angel of death passed over. The, all the land and killed the firstborn unless those that had the blood on the doorposts of the sacrificed animal would have the angel just pass over and nothing would happen to their family. So now they commemorate that in Passover, but the week leading up to that, they go through purification rituals, preparing themselves. So again, they can be there and be considered pure in the eyes of the Lord. Now, don't you find it interesting that those that are in charge of this um, purification process and leading to the festival, the ones that we would look to and say, they're the ones that know what's going on in the moment of purification are the ones plotting to kill an innocent man. Somebody who's just brought too much life to people, too much healing, too much provision, too much blessing to people. So on the outside, they're saying people come and bring your sins. Let's purify. Let's get ready for the most important celebration. Hey, are we off that guy yet? Hey, have we killed him yet? The deals that are going on in the back room that the sheep wouldn't even know are happening. Can you imagine how offensive this is to God? And yet it's all part of the plan that will allow Jesus to lay his life down for the sins of all. So again, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a worship party for him, a dinner. Now, people are in their place. We'd expect them to be if we remember the story of these three. Martha was serving. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. And Mary was probably somewhere at the feet of Jesus. This is who they are. This is what they were doing. But there's some differences now. Because remember, the, we were introduced to them back in Luke 10 before Lazarus was raised from the dead. So let's go back and just remind ourselves what happened there. Back in Luke 10, beginning in verse 38. 
Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. I had so many people last week tell me I'm a Martha. I can relate to that. Really trying to be more of a Mary, but right now I think I'm more of a Martha. I got to go, 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 go. So there's hope for you in this. Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, again, this is before Lazarus, their dear brother, died and Jesus shows up many days later so that they all can be sure he's dead and gone just to call him forth and bring and breathe life into his lungs. So they were focused more about it's not fair that I should have to do all the work just to make preparations for you. She's not helping me out. And there was this concern about what everyone was doing. Post-resurrection, after Lazarus comes stumbling out of a grave, now we start to see that there's no job too small. Martha's back at serving in this John 12 context because that's who she is. She's a worker. I've had people say, you know, while Mary was offering perfume, Martha, as gross as this is for me to say this, if any of you know me, Martha was offering perspiration. (laughs) That was her That was her offering, her gift of love. That's kind of like her love language. If people are fed and taken care of, if the house looks in order, then I will feel like I am giving something to them. So was Jesus trying to correct her back in Luke 10 saying, Martha, Martha, stop being such a worker. You need to just sit at my feet all the time and fundamentally change the whole nature of who you are. No, because she's still doing it after Lazarus is risen. But nobody says a peep about it. Everyone's just accepting that's how it is. For Martha, there's no job too small. She is a worker. This hospitality thing is her love language. So Jesus was not correcting her service. Instead, he was warning of what busyness would cause her to miss, which is intimacy with the Savior. And if we're not careful, we run into that same thing. It's easy for us to measure religion. I know how many times I've been in church. I know how many dollars I put in the box. I know how many people I told about the love of God. I know how many times I prayed or how many minutes or hours or something like that. I can measure my own effort, but it's difficult for me to measure the presence of God and how much I'm investing or showing worth in the fact that he is my relationship and that I can have intimacy with my savior. It's very costly to view our walk with God as a thing to do. There are things we do as we walk with God. This isn't a dismissal of service. But instead, it should be a relationship to be in. And at times in our relationships, we'll work harder than other times. Sometimes it's sufficient just to sit in the same room and just breathe the same air and relax in the same space. Or as we just sang, to have the word of God speak to our hearts. But tasks are easier for us to measure, and that's why we get caught up in religious activity as opposed to relationship enhancement as we walk with the Lord. It's all part of the same thing. 
And for Martha, there was no extra motivation needed. Now she's fueled by praise. Every time she looks and sees her brother reclining at the table, she's just outside of herself. She goes, I can't believe he's back. Remember how how freaked out we were and how scared we were that he was going through this. Remember the pain we watched him endure. Remember the heartbreak as he took his final breath and the hopelessness we had that Jesus wasn't coming. For two days, we looked out for him to show up and he wasn't coming. Remember all that despair, and I can't believe it. I get to wash his dishes. I get to deliver his dinner at the table. You, you can imagine her, her motivation or her energy in this is being fueled by this re, re, reaction to all that God has given her, that life has been resurrected right before her very eyes, and now you can't slow her down. Because the greatest boost to our work is a life of appreciation. Paul gives us a very solemn warning. He says to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. What we let go of ourselves, what we give out of ourselves is an act of worship, spiritual worship before the Lord. This kind of hits us right where we live. What would change if you viewed your work as worship to the God who provided you with the job, with the task, with the responsibility, or even with the burden or headache to begin with. What would change? Just take a second. Let that linger for a second. What you were complaining about this week, what you were afraid of, what you were feeling unproductive with or something. If you started putting Jesus face on all of your tasks, on your boss's shoulders or any of those kinds of things. And you said, you know what? From now on, everything I do is for him and not necessarily for all of them. What would change? My suspicion is that the complaints would lessen. That we would feel less fatigue because we would have more wind in our sails because he's giving us the opportunity to praise him. I know this for a fact because I've seen it in action that you would have greater impact with your work because now you become a better, more skilled worker because it matters to you more. You start to treat it as something that you've been given to steward over and you got to take care of it and make sure it goes well and goes right. And other people take a step back and say, what is going on with this person's performance? And we've talked already about our ability to tell others about Jesus. And that starts to go through the roof when our work is being led by worship as opposed to griping, complaining, fear, trying to climb the corporate ladder at the expense of other people or any of those other things that we would be tempted to engage in. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as being shadowed for us in the resurrection of Lazarus is what motivates genuine work. But it also motivates genuine witness. So let's talk just for a little bit about this key figure called Lazarus. Verse 9 tells us that when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, They came not only on account of Jesus, but to see Lazarus. He's a celebrity now. As he would be. He's a key figure in this whole thing. He's the one whom Jesus raised from the dead. Verse 10. Now here's the unfortunate side effect. He can't just recline naturally and easily because he's got breath in his lungs. Now he's a target. The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. He's the star witness. If you're in a courtroom, which is kind of the setting we put at the beginning of this book. 
If you're in a courtroom and they say, who you call as your next witness? They're like, oh, give us a second. We're going to have to take the burial cloths off him so he can come in and stand before you. That's kind of damning to the other side. I don't know why they were thinking they could get rid of him and nobody else would know it or notice it. I, you know, kind of tongue in cheek. I don't know why they thought they could really finish him off. He came back once already. Is he going to be dead this time for sure? What if he comes back a second time? It's going to hurt their case. But nonetheless, they start to see this is a guy that hurts our case. Why? By his mere existence. You notice there's no, in any of the passages we've read about Lazarus, there's no words recorded. We don't know what he says. We don't know anything about his personality. He just offered himself as a dead corpse that the Lord said, I'm going to bring him back to life. And all we get is somebody who walked out of a tomb and now he's sitting around at a table. He didn't say anything. And yet he becomes one of the chief or star witness for Jesus' power of resurrection. And the scripture had said that on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus in verse 11. There's been a statement that's been attributed to Francis of Assisi. It's not really sure that he actually said this. It really doesn't matter. But it's a common phrase and one that we heard, we hear and use often, and it kind of bears some explanation. It simply says, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Now, that could be something that we put on Lazarus and say, well, see, he was able to preach the gospel without even speaking from what we can tell. He allowed the Lord Jesus to resurrect his life. People can look at it and say, clearly he's here living, breathing. It must have worked. Jesus is to be praised and believed in. Now, the intent, I think, of this statement of preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words is really for us to understand what James tells us in two seven in chapter two, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, our our lips should not be louder than our works or our integrity or our testimony of our authenticity. Don't don't uh, lose one for the other. So we are to preach the gospel at all times, but yes, the gospel requires words. We share the truth of God's word. It is the only thing that can convert the soul to new life in Christ. But it is our actions that give them weight. It is our actions that give them uh, a verification. And the greatest witness is a combination of truth spoken and actions verified. So Lazarus is able to play his part with no words required, but yet we find that there's no greater testimony. He just died and was brought back to life. We're given here an image of as Lazarus is dead and in the, in the grave that so are, are we when we die in our sins, we go to G, we go with Jesus to the cross and we are dead to ourselves. But we're given a hint of the resurrection to come as though because Jesus is able to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he's still going to die a physical death. We said this last week. Only Jesus was the one that that raised himself out of the grave, removed his own clothes and was never going to face death ever again. And so we have this testimony. We have this incredible picture by Lazarus, but we have our rescue from Jesus himself. This is how Paul states it in Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let me ask you this question. And I'm going to encourage you, don't just answer this quickly in your mind, no matter how committed or ready you are for this. Answer this question by counting a cost. Would you be willing to die to yourself if you knew that on the other side of that, Jesus would get more glory by the fact that he brought you back to life? This this is the, the crux of everybody who comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the danger of having a, an easy sales pitch for becoming a Christian. Just believe and you'll be okay. That's certainly, it sounds like that's the thrust of all of John. We said that uh, later on in the book, they said that John said, the purpose of me writing this is so that you would believe and that by believing you would have life in the name of Jesus. So all we have to do is mentally go, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. There I'm in. But what we're seeing in Lazarus is a death to self. What we're seeing in Jesus is a resurrection of real life. And in the rest of the New Testament, in particular in the writings of Paul, we get the reminders and the encouragement that we are to willingly die to ourselves, our hopes, our dreams, our ambitions, our demands, and all those things. And we just say, Lord, compared to the life you can give me, those things mean nothing to me. I lay them all down before you. So that he can stand before our grave and call us by name and say, come forth. And we, we resurrect in new life that he's given to us. So the question is, would we willingly die to ourselves if we knew that Jesus would get more glory by bringing us back to life? You see, if we don't die to ourselves and we just add Jesus and we still are the same really cool, really good looking, really talented people. And we say, that's who needs to represent Jesus. All these great people that have this really cool story. And yet they keep getting all the glory and we see less and less of Jesus. Did that person really die to themselves? What if he strips us all of our stuff and, and, and at the same time lays us bare before our sin and we say, I have no answer to this. I have no solution to the pile of sin that I bring before him. He says, I'm going to forgive it. I'm going to crucify it and I'm going to raise you up to new life. And then I have you forever. And, and you'll get it right and you'll get it wrong. You'll say the right things and you won't say anything at all. Sometimes you'll just be reclining at the table. And because of the fact that people would say, kind of like the blind man said some chapters ago, remember they were pressing in on him and they said, tell us how Jesus healed you of your blindness. He says, look, I don't know the mechanics. I don't know the science. I don't even fully know who he is. I've only been looking around for five minutes. All I can tell you is I once was blind, but now I see. All I can tell you is I used to be that guy or that girl, and now I'm this person over here. Can we say that? Can we say it's all been, it's all different, it's all been changed? Does our life point to a resurrection, a calling out of a grave? Because the power of our witness is only found in the life that Christ has given to us. Everything else is useless in pointing towards the glory of God. So let's move on. We've talked about two of our main characters. So far, we've seen that Martha was serving without complaining for once, right? She was complaining before the resurrection. Now she could care less who's helping her. She gets to do it to thank Jesus for her brother. 
Lazarus was witnessing without speaking. Now let's see how Mary worshiped without withholding. Because the resurrection motivates genuine worship, which is how we started our time off together. Mary, in verse 3, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What we're talking about here is something so valuable and expensive. It would be, if you know what your, you know, your annual salary is, imagine you paid for a bottle of perfume with your annual salary. And somebody came over and you're like, oh, you got to smell this. You got to try this. And you start just, you break the top off. There's no going back. It's open and it's done. You can't repair it. That's what she did. And she starts to put it on his hair, on his feet. She starts to anoint him with it so that not only he, but the whole atmosphere will smell beautiful. Imagine the freak out that's happening as people are watching her do this. They know this stuff is pure. They know it's from away. They know it's, you know, the, uh, the equivalent of what we would call forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. And she says, it doesn't matter to me anymore. He's the one that matters to me anymore, and I want him to have it. In Mark, uh, we get a, a, a bit of a portrayal that it's not just Judas who's starting to point this out and be like, ah, oh, well, a shock. You know, he's kind of painting it as like the whole room is pretty mystified at this. Judas is the only one sinister enough to speak up and sound like he cares about giving to the poor. But John fortunately gives us commentary and says, and it's not because he cared about the poor that he was worried about. It's because he was a thief. And he thought, if someone could sell this, we'd put it in the money bag and I've got control of the money bag. Doesn't that start to give us an idea of how G, uh, Judas was able to sell out Jesus? We've sometimes wondered, was he really a believer and he had a momentary lapse of judgment and everything? Seems like Judas all along was marching towards betrayal. Seems like maybe he was in the pocket of whoever the highest bidder was. Maybe he was a little bit more like the Sadducees who wanted to be politically expedient and always looking for which uh, gravy train to ride on. And as it started looking like this thing that Jesus was doing was no longer just big miracles and huge crowds, he started to go, "Ah, I think I hitched my wagon to the wrong train. And he starts preparing for selling out Jesus. But Mary said, no, there's no cost too great for my Savior. And our greatest praise comes through cost. There's a story that's told in 2 Samuel. I won't go into all the detail and things, but David had made a major blunder before the Lord, and the Lord was calling him out on it and corrected him through the prophet. And he said, so you've got some options here on how I'm going to punish you. David chose the option of which he would be able to, uh, the, the nation would have to endure some suffering and things, but then he would go off and build an altar to sacrifice to the Lord to make things right. And he went and found a piece of land and Arunah, the uh, Jebusite had that land and David comes to him and, and, and we'll, uh, we'll pick it up here in second Samuel 24, beginning verse 22. He says to David, he says, let my Lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arunah gives to the king. So David's looking for a place to sacrifice. He is mortified and he's brought so much judgment on his people. David knows he's made a huge error. 
And here's this guy because he wants to worship the king and he wants to uh, lay things at his feet. He says, I'll even give you, David, this will take things off your shoulders and everything here. You can have my land, you have my oxen, whatever. It would be an honor for me to, to give this to you and to help the people of our land. And what does David say? In verse 24, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. You see, David's feeling the weight and the guilt of his sin. He's, I can't give a free offering to the Lord. I put my people in these, in this position. The Lord has given me his grace by saying, here's a way out. I've got to invest in some of this. And don't we often feel that? That there's an opportunity for us to praise the Lord or to come before him, but we know it's going to come at great cost. And then because we're humans, we waffle sometimes. We say, is this worth it? Man, I hope this is worth it. I'm going to take that perfume off the shelf and I'm going to slide it across. Sometimes it's just not real willing, you know. It's like, oh, I'm doing this because it seems like the right thing to do or I feel very guilty or something. Here, take this and I'm watching a year's salary wash down the drain. Why was Mary so able to just dive right in? And and she might have heard the testimony of this happening before because a, a prostitute had done that with Jesus where she was crying over him and she was wiping his feet with her tears and she was just showing so much uh, thankfulness for the forgiveness that she found in him. And, and that kind of probably spread around and Mary was like, I could do that too because Jesus has done so much for me. There was no cost too great. There was no reputation too valuable. Here's Mary doing this before all these onlookers in a subtlety that you and I wouldn't really pick up on. But once she starts taking her hair down and using this to wipe the feet of Jesus, she's embarrassing herself in front of people because it's not proper for a lady to do that in that time. And she's abandoning all of that, all of that reputation, all of that perception. And she says, I don't care. I want to give this literally at the feet of Jesus. Paul tells us something similar in Philippians 3. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Just knowing him, having him, Mary could say, having him in my house, having my brother reclining at the same table. All of those things is what I really hunger for. It's what I really care about. This jar on the shelf means nothing to me anymore. It did when I first invested in it. Now I could care less. Paul says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ that I may know him and what the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There was no reputation worth preserving. She didn't care as Paul is saying, he didn't care any longer about his credentials or how people would look at him anymore because he saw Jesus in front of him. Mary saw Jesus in front of her. She said, as long as I can let him know what he means to me, that his worth is greater to me than anything else I possess. And Jesus indicates for her that there's no cause more worthy as the crowd is growing really contentious. And that's where the Mark passage would help us see this a little bit more. There's some arguing going on. There are people like, how in the world? Why would she do this? And then Judas is adding his voice to it, saying, there's a year's worth of wages here. We could have taken care of the poor and all these kinds of things. But Mary saw the value of adorning Christ over the value 
of her possessions. Jesus says in John 12, verse 7, Sorry if I'm jumping our slides ahead a little bit here, but Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And we have to be careful to understand the statement in the spirit in which it was delivered. Jesus is saying, here's a clue, uh, people at the dinner. Here's a clue, party people, that I will die one day. And I'm sure they weren't putting it together. Oh, this could be really soon or anything. But he's saying what she's doing is an act of preparation. This is what they would do for the dead body. They would perfume it because they didn't do the other embalming methods and stuff. And so they would mask all the things that would come about from the decay and things. And so he said, she's just doing it ahead of time. He took advantage of the opportunity to let them know this is my destiny. This is how the direction I'm marching in. And he says, and stop worrying about this thing that you call the poor. He says, I know your heart. If you wanted to do something about it, you could have done it yesterday. You'll be able to do it tomorrow. There'll always be poor people around. Jesus wasn't saying, don't worry about the poor. Just pour out all your expensive stuff. Sometimes we get that impression that churches, the richer they get and all that sort of stuff, and they leave the needs of their city behind and stuff like that. We might be able to use something like this as a justification of that. Well, we pour it all into Jesus. Who cares what the needs of the other people are? But that isn't what Jesus was intending to communicate. He's saying there'll be plenty of opportunity to take care of the poor. But for now, you uniquely have the presence of the Savior of the world who is about to lay his life down. And so this act of sacrifice is important and it's, and it's precious to him. He even said in Mark, he said, there will, be, there will be the gospel shared throughout all of the rest of history and they will talk about what Mary has done in this sacrifice. He said it's that important what she's doing right now. Here we are in 2021 talking about what Mary did all those years ago. Jesus knows, please hear this. Jesus knows the importance of our sacrifice, even when we don't. And you know what? We so often miss it. We don't even know. It's kind of like Caiaphas where he didn't even know what he was saying when he was talking about one man would die for the sins of the nation. Or he didn't even, or so many times we don't even realize the right things we're doing because we look at it as I don't really do a good job of that or it wasn't really much of a sacrifice or something like that. Jesus always has the sum of our investment before him even when we don't even realize what it is that we're giving. He knows the plans he's going to do, how he's going to use that sacrifice, how he's going to use that worship, how he's going to multiply its effect. Mary had no idea. She wasn't sitting there thinking, oh, I hope they write about me in the history books. When they see what I've done and they see the value of it, it was just a knee-jerk reaction out of such gratitude and brokenness before the Lord. She wasn't calculating its impact. Neither should you or I. As the Lord calls us to do whatever it is that he's calling us to do next, we just offer it in sacrifice. And it's so much better when we're motivated by praise and worship, when we're giving our lives back to him because of all he's done for us. And he takes the calculation. He adds the formula. He says, they have no idea how I'm going to use this. And we won't know perhaps even until we get to heaven and see it playing out for eternity. So what are we saying? When our efforts or our work is fueled by genuine thanks for what God has done, 
They will seem effortless to us. And they're in a beautiful aroma to the Lord. I've said at the beginning that we struggle sometimes with, am I really bringing enough to the table? Am I really consistent in my faith? Would the Lord really use me? Does he really accept me? We have all these thoughts of doubt. But genuine worship comes from thanks. That's the thing that we can control. That's what we can focus on. So how will you view your work, whether you get a paycheck or you punch a clock or you work at home or you no longer have a job because you've retired? We all have tasks to do. How will you view your work as worship this week? Trust me, it will transform your approach. It will transform your outcome if you do these things as unto the Lord. When our lives, uh, when, when our lives are genuinely transformed by the resurrection of Jesus, our witness to others who need him becomes trustworthy, becomes easier, becomes believable. So how will you let your character speak for your belief in Jesus this week? And lastly, when we recognize the surpassing worth of Jesus, we lose our interest in things that only have temporary value. That thing on the shelf, that, that thing in the driveway, that, that uh, title on the desk, or any of those kinds of things that we pursued all our life, wrapped our identity in. When we recognize the surpassing worth of Jesus, when we really see the height and the magnificence of who he is, we start to care so less about those things and we could give them up in a heartbeat. And if that scares you, it should. This is what it means to die to ourselves. Am I saying that everybody, if you're a doctor, quit being a doctor tomorrow. That's not it. How much do you care about being one? How much is your identity wrapped up in that? How much is it wrapped up in me being a pastor or you being a mother or you being a straight A student or any of these kinds of things? How do we pursue those things and would we give them up in terms of what they mean about who we are in order to point out the surpassing value of who Jesus is? How will you hold Jesus higher in your view so that other things will diminish and lose their grip on your heart. I believe that's the call to us today out of this passage. Would you stand please and let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, we want to thank you, Father, for an incredible example of this little family. Thank you, Lord, for highlighting them for our use and our encouragement. Thank you, Lord, for having similar plans for all of your creation. Maybe not to the extent that people will put us in written form or tell our stories for generations, Lord, but you use our gifts, you use our sacrifices, you use our dedication to you uh, in ways that we can't even measure. But Lord, we as a people, we want to be authentic in our worship. We don't want to have to strive so hard to feel like we have to prove our love for you or anything. Lord, we want it to flow out of a heart of praise and appreciation. Help us, Lord, to see your resurrected life in us to see it around us keep focusing on your goodness especially in this thanksgiving season lord god we praise you in your mighty name we pray amen